I want to look at it one more time before we begin looking at the Gospels in preparation for Christmas. 1 Corinthians 13 is about love, and we all know Christmas is about love. If you've watched any Hallmark movies, you know that that's what Christmas is about. It's about love. And obviously, we know by reading the Bible that it truly is about love. And the greatest gift you can give someone is the gift of love. And the question is, what kind of love are we talking about? And 1 Corinthians 13 describes for us the kind of love that God exhibits and that he calls us to exhibit as well in our lives. And so read with me again 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 1 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God. As I mentioned, it's very important for us to understand what kind of love Paul is talking about here, because there are different kinds of love, as we've highlighted There's what you might call romantic love, which is love based on attraction. It's the marry me kind of love. There's the family kind of love, which is based on connections, which is the blood love, you might say. There's friendship love, which is based on commonalities. It's the um, you like this too kind of love. There's what you might call the enjoyment kind of love, which is based on pleasure which is ice cream love. And then there's uh, maybe receiver love, where love is based on being loved. It's the Barney love. I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. So it's that kind of love, right? So there's all kinds of love, and yet those kinds of love may or may not reflect this kind of love, depending on whether or not this kind of love is the foundation For all those kinds of love. And so we want to think about, again, what Paul is talking about here, because it really is crucial in so many different ways. And so we've gone through this list up to the point 
where we are now in verse 6. So I'll just start right there for the sake of time. And in verse 6, what Paul says is, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And so the first point I want to make in thinking about this kind of love is that it's a love that is very much concerned with what is right. And why is that? Because the love that's being talked about here is a divine love. It's a love that God shows. It's a love that um, is described by the Bible in various kinds of ways, but it's essentially a love that lays down its life for other people or for the glory of God, even if it's not deserved and even if it costs a great deal. But it's the kind of love that reflects the heart and holiness of God. And so it's gracious and it's sacrificial, but it's also righteous. And so all those things are important. The gracious love of God, the sacrificial love of God in terms of aspect, but also that it's a righteous kind of love as well. It's important in our day and time because a lot of people are talking in such a way that they're basically arguing for uh, the Disney kind of love. And what I mean by the Disney kind of love is a lot of people have pointed out that one of the themes in Disney movies, at least some of the more recent ones, is kind of reflected in the movie Coco, which is a Disney movie where one of the characters says, the rest of the world may follow the rules, but I must follow my heart. And so the idea of following your heart is uh, exalted as the ultimate uh, way to make decisions, way to shape your life. And obviously, is there some truth in that? Depending on how you define what it means to follow your heart, there can be. But most of the time, it seems to be a matter of regardless of what the rules are, whether it's rules of what's appropriate or rules with regard to how God says we're to live our lives, we're just to follow our heart. There's a movie uh, that was made back in 1995 called Mr. Holland's Opus. Some of you may have seen it, but it's about a high school band teacher who basically uh, becomes infatuated with one of his students who sings beautifully and she shares his dream for uh, being uh, a famous uh, musician of sorts. And in the process of this movie, she decides that she's going to go to New York and she invites her teacher, who's married, to go with her, to take the midnight bus and head out to New York after the final uh, performance that they were going to have. And so the teacher meets Rowena at the bus stop and basically they have this interaction and I've imagined what that interaction should look like if it was based on 1 Corinthians 13. What Rowena is doing is she's basically saying to her teacher, if you love me, you'll come with me. Don't you love me? Then come with me. What is the 1 Corinthians 13 response of this married man to this young woman who's saying, if you love me, you'll come with me. 1 Corinthians 13 response will be something along the lines of, I really do love you. 
That's why I'm not going with you. And that's why I'm going home to my wife. That would be the 1 Corinthians 13 response in light of the fact that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love always does what is right. In our day and time, we can embrace easily the idea that you can love someone and do the wrong thing from God's perspective or even from other perspectives, but especially from God's perspective. The Bible tells us over and over in various ways that you cannot truly love someone like God calls us to love them by doing the wrong thing. No matter how it feels, no matter the context or whatever. And so the phrase, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, basically means love does not rejoice in what's wrong, does not rejoice in evil, is not glad about evil, whether it's in my life or in someone else's life. Um, There are all kinds of stories in the Bible that highlight this whole issue here because on the one hand, it's talking about the fact of love doesn't enjoy doing what's wrong personally. Love also doesn't enjoy it when they see others doing wrong or others being harmed by what's wrong. There's no joy in evil, however it's seen, however it's experienced. And yet we see, for instance, in the book of Revelation, where there's a story about the two witnesses who prophesy. And the the beast of Revelation kills the two prophets, and their bodies lay, their dead bodies lay in Jerusalem. And according to the story, the picture that's being painted there, uh, it says, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. There are actually um, Christmas cards that have uh, that phrase um, about uh, celebrating and sending gifts to one another based on this verse. That verse is not about... Um, Christmas, it's about rejoicing over unrighteousness. These righteous prophets who are telling people the truth are killed and people are rejoicing over that. There's also in Romans 1 where Paul talks about how the problem with our world is we've exchanged God for what he's created. We, we worship the creation rather than the creator. And at the end of that discussion, he talks about all the various ways in which unrighteousness is seen in our world. He talks about greed, uh, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, uh, being insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventing evil, being disobedient to parents, and all those kinds of things. And he mentions being unloving and all of that. And then at the end, he says... And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So not only is there the issue of what am I doing? Is it right or wrong? But am I also supporting and championing and encouraging people to do what is evil as well? And Paul is saying, To truly love someone is never to encourage them to destroy themselves. 
Because that's what evil does. That's what lies do. To encourage people to believe a lie is to seek their destruction. To encourage them to disobey a holy God is to encourage their destruction. And true love never does that. There's even a place in John 16 where Jesus is talking about his crucifixion. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, talking to his disciples, but the world will rejoice. They're actually going to rejoice over me being murdered. But he says, your grief will be turned to joy because God is going to use that very death to bring about salvation. David, King David in the Old Testament is a good illustration of the positive side of all of this, where someone actually doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. There are two stories in the book of 2 Samuel where in the first story, a man comes to David after Saul, King Saul, has been killed. And King Saul is David's enemy. And this man comes to David and says, you know, Saul asked me to kill, kill him, and I did. And so here's his crown and, and his bracelets, and I brought it to you. And, and this man thought he would be bringing David good news and would rejoice at the fact that he had killed Saul and eliminated his enemy. And David actually has him put to death for it. He did not rejoice in the report of the murder of his own enemy. Same thing happens several chapters later when another enemy of his is actually killed in his bed and the men who did it come to David and he references the first story about Saul and he says, you know, somebody else came to me uh, rejoicing over an unrighteous act they supposedly did on my behalf And I had them killed. And I'm going to do the same for you. So David exhibits the fact that he did not rejoice in unrighteousness. Even when it was committed against his own enemy. He was not happy about it. He did not rejoice in it or support it. The next phrase says love rejoices with the truth. Which is the the flip side of what Paul was talking about. Because... You might ask, why doesn't Paul say love rejoices with righteousness? Love doesn't rejoice with unrighteousness. Why doesn't he say love rejoices with righteousness? Because truth and righteousness go together. If you believe the truth, then you will walk that out in terms of righteous practice. And so righteousness actually begins with believing the truth, the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, the truth about life. And so that's why he says, It believes or rejoices in the truth. Um, It finds its happiness in the truth that there is actually a happiness found in doing what's right. Because we know the truth behind the calls to live a certain way. We know the truth about God. We know the truth about love. And therefore, we gladly seek to do what is right, knowing that that is truly the loving thing to do. There's the story in the New Testament in Luke 15 where basically the religious leaders are upset at Jesus because he's uh, dining with the tax collectors and the sinners. And they don't understand what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't just hanging out with people who are uh, considered to be evil in that culture. He was seeking their salvation. He was seeking to see them transformed by the grace of God. He was seeking to share the good news with them. But the Pharisees and the scribes didn't like it. And so Jesus tells three stories. 
about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And in all these stories, uh, the sheep, the coin, and the son, they're all found. And the shepherd finds the lost sheep, and he says, rejoice with me. The woman finds the lost coin and says, rejoice with me. The story of the prodigal son is interesting in that the prodigal son who took his inheritance and went off to a far country and and squandered it, as the Bible says, on loose living, wrong living, unrighteousness, comes to his senses in the pigsty and says, the hired workers of my father are better off than I am. I'm going back home. And he goes back home. And even before he can get there, it says the father sees him a long way off and runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. And the son says, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father says, bring out the, the robe and the sandals and, and let's party. Let's celebrate. Let's rejoice that this son has been found. Interestingly enough, it doesn't say that the son found his family. It says basically the father found the son. It all points to the fact that God is about the business of finding sinners. Jesus was about the business of finding sinners and bringing them home, bringing them home to God, reconciling sinners to himself. And so that's the kind of thing that is being pictured in, in these stories because what's being rejoiced over is people doing what's right. And what is the right thing in these stories? The right thing is for a sinner to go to God for mercy. The right thing is to turn from sin and to turn toward what is right in the sight of God. And true love rejoices when it sees that happening, not like the Pharisees and Sadducees, and it rejoices to see that happening in our own lives. Well, the Bible tells us in all kinds of ways that God is love, and it says it explicitly in First John, God is love. So what we see in First Corinthians 13 is reflected in the heart of God. God does not play, take any pleasure in evil, takes no pleasure in the suffering that comes from evil. And therefore, Spurgeon could say, we would not care for a God who did not hate sin. There's this dynamic between true love and hatred that we need to understand. That if you really love someone, you hate whatever is going to destroy them. That's why God hates sin. Because he loves True love always causes us to hate unrighteousness, love righteousness, because it hates what destroys and loves what saves and satisfies and truly blesses someone, brings good to someone. In Romans 13, Paul makes it very, very clear um, that love is something that is tied to righteousness when he says this. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment 
of the law. Love does no wrong. And how does that, how is that wrong defined? How do we know what is right and wrong? By the law of God, by the commands of God. That's how we know what is right and what is wrong. And that's how we know what it means to say love does no wrong. Love, when it's truly love, is pursuing the commands of God and doing what is pleasing in his sight. And so we have to be careful of thinking that just feeling like we love someone or feeling like we're doing the right thing is love. We have to have an objective standard because the Bible says our hearts are deceitful and wicked and we can easily justify anything and everything. And we have to evaluate, is what I'm thinking and feeling and wanting to do or what I'm doing actually confirmed by the Bible as being the loving thing to do or not? Because Paul is arguing that love always does what is right according to the word of God. That's why the Bible is so important. So important to know the Bible and pray for grace to apply it in all of our relationships. Well, the second main thing that I want us to think about is in light of verse 7. And it's basically the idea that love, all that's been talked about so far in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, divine love, is never thwarted by circumstances. Never thwarted by circumstances, which is really interesting. It says in verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, that can be misunderstood in various ways, but I think what he's saying there, it bears up in all circumstances. It believes the gospel, the truth in all circumstances. It hopes in the promises of God in all things, in all circumstances, and it endures, it outlasts all circumstances. Um, One of the things that is common for all of us is to rationalize it when we know we're not being loving. There are many times when we're very aware of the fact that we're just having a hard time loving someone and we have a way of minimizing that and excusing that with phrases like, if they didn't, I wouldn't. Or, if they would just, then I would. Or, it's so hard, that's why I don't. And you just can fill in the blanks there. I mean, we're all there at different times and different ways and different relationships. And it's very easy for us to basically justify our lovelessness based on the other person or the circumstances or whatever it may be. And that's why one of my favorite um, stories is a story that Jan even referenced uh, recently as we were talking about the issue of loving in hard circumstances. It's a story about the holy man and the scorpion. And you may remember that story. It's about this uh, holy man. I don't know if he was in India or where he was, but so supposedly he was on the bank of this river and he was meditating and he's under this tree and the, the roots of the tree go out into the river. And as he's meditating, he notices there's a scorpion caught in the roots of this tree and the river is rising for some reason. And the scorpion scorpion is in danger of being drowned. And so the holy man reaches down to try and help the scorpion and the scorpion strikes back at him and will not let him help him well as he's trying to do this somebody comes by and watches what's going on and 
and he says, don't you know that's a scorpion? And it's in the nature of a scorpion to want to sting. Don't you know that? And the holy man replies, that may well be, but it is my nature to save. And and must I change my nature because the scorpion does not change its nature? He's basically raising the question, should I not love simply because I'm not being loved? Does that scorpion striking back at me justify my just letting him drown? Or shouldn't I continue loving, seeking to save him, seeking to do this scorpion good, even while he's trying to strike me? That's what God does every day. There are people every day around the world who are striking back at God in their hearts in various ways, striking back at God by the way they live and ignore him and reject his love. And yet God still loves, keeps on loving. And certainly that is especially true for his children. Even on our worst days, when we are doubting God, questioning God, even like Job, accusing God of being cruel and... um, out to get us, God is still loving. And so I want to think just for a few minutes about various aspects of what he says in verse 7. First of all, love bears all things. The basic uh, idea there is the idea of bearing up under a weight, that it does not collapse under the weight of something. And what might that weight be? I would say that God's love for us as his people does not collapse under the weight of our sin or under the weight of how we might, even on our worst days, accuse God of not loving us. It puts up with a lot. It still continues to love and support and bear with us. God continues to keep his promises even when we're not trusting him as we should as his people especially. It's interesting, Paul could talk about this thing in the sense of, in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about not using his right to have churches support him. And it resulted in him having to bear a weight. And what was that weight? He had to provide for himself. He had to, had to work extra. Uh, he didn't receive any compensation from the churches he was preaching to. And therefore, he had an added weight put on his life, but he did it and he bore that weight, that added pressure on him because he wanted to love them and he didn't want there to be any hindrance to the gospel. That's what it says. Nevertheless, we did not use this right of being supported by you financially, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So he's talking about the fact we bore the weight of having to provide for ourselves through our own labor so that it would not be a hindrance to our loving you just like we knew you needed to be loved. And yet how often do we look at the weight of having to love someone and want to get out from under that weight? Want to find an easier person to love or an easier circumstance to love. The other aspect of it is just the aspect of um, the weight of sin, the weight of failure in our lives. We might think that maybe God will stop loving us because of that. I thought about Peter. 
Peter, before Christ is crucified, denies him three times. After saying, I'll never deny you. And after Jesus rises from the dead, um, the angel appears to the women at the tomb and he tells them he is risen, he's not here. And he says in the book of Mark, the angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Why was Peter singled out? Peter was singled out to let him know that the weight of his denials, the weight of his sin against Christ did not cause the love of Christ to collapse. It did not collapse under the weight of his sin and his denial. That the weight of the love of Jesus for Peter outweighed and was stronger than his sin and his denials. All of us at times probably feel like um, we've sinned in such a way that God could not love us anymore. I think Peter felt something like that after his denials. That's why he went away crying, weeping. Because he wondered if he had just blown it. And God's love for us will bear that weight as his people. Spurgeon could say, when he's talking about Christians, sin can never sever you from God's love. He loves you still. No matter what has just happened, no matter how you've just failed, he loves you still. It bears up under the weight and will not collapse under the weight of our sin and our failure. What Paul does, he says, it bears up under all things. And at the end, he says, it endures all things. And uh, commentators will often put those two things together. And it's because the idea of bearing up is the idea of the it bearing, it bears a weight. The idea of enduring is more time-related. It's more of outlasting something. It will outlast uh, something like a soldier. The picture there is the picture of a soldier who keeps on fighting to the end and will not stop fighting. He does not give up. He does not quit fighting. So the picture there is a picture of love that outlasts everything it has to outlast in order to love us to the very end. I heard a pastor one time talk about issues in his congregation and someone asked him, basically, how did you survive that season of opposition and conflict in your church? And basically he said, I just determined to outlast everyone. I just determined to make sure my love outlasted the conflict, that it did not end before the conflict ended. And so the picture that we have here is a love, God's love for his people that outlasts the sin against us and the suffering that it brings. It's kind of reflected, I think, in 1 Peter 2 when it speaks about the importance of dealing with people who are unreasonable and bearing up on your sorrows. And it says, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. It pleases God when we're in a situation where people are being unreasonable, uh, they're being unkind, they're being mean, they're being unloving, and we patiently endure it. Our love outlasts their sin against us to the very end. Because the Bible says that for all those who've trusted God, 
through Jesus that we can know that he's going to love us to the end of our lives and he's going to love us to the end of all things. And interestingly enough, in John 13, which is the beginning of the discussion of the night that Jesus was betrayed, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's the love of God for his people. He will love us to the end of our lives and he will love us to the end of eternity, which there is no end. Therefore, to God's love for us. But it will outlast our sin, our failure, and our suffering in this world. Spurgeon can say about God's love for the church, for believers, God loves the church with a love too deep for human imagination. He loves her with it all his infinite heart. That's why it says in Song of Solomon 8, 7, Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. Well, let me just uh, take a few minutes to wrap this up. What Paul does, I believe, with the other two phrases here that are in between the two I just talked about, he says, love Believes all things and hopes all things. Later on in the chapter, he's going to put together faith, hope, and love. Jonathan Edwards talks about the fact that those three, three things are chained together in Scripture. They always go together. And I believe what Paul is doing here is drawing out the fact that love, if it's truly divine love, the kind of love that lays down its life, even for those who don't deserve it, even those who aren't loving us, even at great cost, that kind of love can only be fueled by faith and hope. Faith and hope in what? Well, first of all, faith in the truth, faith in the gospel, faith in the word of God. We can put ourselves in in any position where we're having trouble loving and we can say, I know I'm supposed to love this person. It's very clear. I read my Bible. I know I'm supposed to love this person, but this person isn't loving me back. We may ask the question, how can I love them when they do this? Or how can I love someone who is like this? Or how can I love someone who treats me this way? And Paul is arguing, I believe, that there are two important aspects, which are really uh, two sides of the same coin. It takes faith and hope to love in the way that God is calling us to. Because the Bible says faith works through love. Faith and love are chained together. Hope and love are chained together. Uh, There's a story of a Scottish evangelist uh, early in the 1900s who was on his way from Scotland to, um, I guess it would have been Chicago. And he was on the Titanic. And we know what happens to the Titanic. The Titanic sinks. And so he was with... His, um, his daughter and his sister on the Titanic, um, and he was going to preach some messages and obviously didn't make it. He made sure that his uh, sister and his daughter got on a lifeboat. He found a life preserver and ended up in the water. And he was encouraging people to be prepared to die in this circumstance. And he uh, he comes upon this man in the water and he asks him, are you saved? 
And the man says, no, I'm not. And so John Harper says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He, he moves around and eventually he gets next to a man who doesn't have a life preserver on, who's obviously about to drown. And John Harper takes off his life preserver, gives it to the man and says, you need this more than I do. So what fueled that act of love to save that man's life by giving him that life preserver? What caused John Harper to do that? It was faith and hope. Faith in what? Faith in the gospel that he was encouraging people to believe, knowing that his sins were forgiven because he had trusted in an able and willing Savior named Jesus. And he knew that if he were to die... Death was not something he had to fear. That to be absent from the body as a believer is to be present with the Lord. So when he sank down under the waters and drowned, the next moment he was in paradise with Jesus. But you don't take off your life preserver unless you believe something like that. And that's what he believed. That's what caused him to love. He had a faith that enabled him to lay down his life for someone else. Now, there are, there are very few circumstances where we actually have to do something like that. But what about um, laying down our agenda to serve someone else? What about laying down what we want to give someone else what they need? What about laying down our lives in other ways every day of our life which is rooted in believing things. Believing that there are things promised me in Jesus that are greater than anything I can have in this life, anything I can do in this life. I don't need to do anything to enjoy this life. I don't need to have anything in this life to be truly happy because I have faith in Jesus that he will take care of that. Love believes in all things, in all situations, in all circumstances. It believes the gospel of Jesus Christ and his finished work in all circumstances. The reason why we do we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week is because we need to be reminded that regardless of what happened this last week, my sins are forgiven. And I have a home in heaven because of what Jesus did for me. It's a reminder of God's love for us. Well, the other side of the coin is, and it's very closely related, is that love hopes all things, or hopes in all circumstances. It hopes in God and all that he has promised us in Jesus. There's a story of um, the two men on the road to Emmaus after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. And Jesus meets them on the road. And they're amazed that that he seems to be, Jesus seems to be unaware of what's happened. And they make the comment that the religious leaders put Jesus to death. And we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They saw the events that took place with Jesus. And they thought... <clears throat> 
that they had no hope in Jesus anymore, that they had lost all hope. That's the temptation as we look at our own circumstances, is to think all hope is lost and not realize that God's promises to us in Jesus remain the same no matter what our circumstances are. Therefore, I can love regardless of my circumstances because the promises haven't changed. I can still trust God for what I need. I can trust God for my future. I can trust God to take care of me as I lay down my life for others. Just very quickly, there's a passage in 1 Peter 3 where it talks about wives being submissive to their disobedient husbands. Basically, wives loving their husbands. And the key to it, it says, if you read 1 Peter 3, is that they hope in God. They didn't hope in their husbands. They didn't hope that their husbands were always going to make the right decision. Their hope was in God who was over their husbands. Therefore, they were enabled to love by hope in God. Not hope in their circumstances, not hope in people, but hope in God. And that's why Paul could say, love believes all things, hopes all things, because it's trusting God to fulfill his promises, to fulfill his purposes, all because of what Jesus has done for us. And so the story of Christmas, when you think about it, is Mary loving God and loving others by gladly embracing the role of giving birth to Jesus. Why? Because it says she believed that there would be a fulfillment of what God had spoken to her or what had been spoken to her by the Lord. She believed God's word And it enabled her to love in a way that was going to bring her some suffering, bring her some raised eyebrows, bring her some difficult times. And yet she, by her faith and hope in God, loved in that circumstance. And so John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, have eternal life that is the heart of christmas it's about love jesus came because of love to love for love god the father god the son god the holy spirit agreed to send jesus jesus being the son of god and he came to love us by laying down his life for us so that we by believing in him by, might be set free to love like he loves. There is a song uh, entitled When Love Came Down to Earth, and I'll close with this. When love came down to earth and made his home with men, the hopeless found a hope, the sinner found a friend. Not to the powerful, but to the poor he came, and humble, hungry hearts were satisfied again. What joy, what peace has come to us, what hope, what help, what love. When every unclean thought and every sinful deed was scourged upon his back and hammered through his feet, the innocent is cursed, the guilty are released. The punishment of God on God has brought me peace. Come lay your heavy load down at the master's feet. Your shame will be removed. 
your joy will be complete. Come crucify your pride and enter as a child. For those who bow down low, he'll lift up to his side. The good news of Christmas is that Jesus is an able and willing Savior for sinners. And the question is, have you received the gift of Christmas? The true gift gift of Christmas, which is an able and willing Savior for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. We pray that you would rescue us from failing to truly see and understand what Christmas is all about and failing to see our, our need for a Savior who laid down his life for us so that we could truly love, love God and love others in the way that you call us to love. Not that we would earn our salvation or receive anything by our own good works, but that we would be forgiven simply by grace through faith alone in Jesus. And then by the Holy Spirit, we would be enabled to love like God loves. And we just pray that all of us here would see that, know that, rejoice in that this Christmas, and that we would truly find what Christmas is all about in a fresh and new way. And for those of us who have trusted you as our Lord and our Savior, please prepare us now for this Lord's Supper Help us to receive it in a fresh new way and know that whatever our circumstances are, whatever our week has looked like, that the love of God remains full and forever for each of us who are trusting Jesus. We thank you for your word. Please bless it to the good of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.